Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. Here is a truth that some people find very uncomfortable. Rock, alt-rock, and indie rock are predominantly white. Why is that? Well, the answers, and there are more than one, are complicated. There's actually been quite a lot of study into this question. Perhaps it's because non-white people don't choose this music as part of the way they project their identity to the world. Culturally, they just don't identify with these forms of music, so they naturally gravitate somewhere else. Others ask, how is this different from choosing the music of their culture and ethnicity over that of another? If you're Italian, for example, the chances are you will have a greater affinity to the music of your culture, to Italian music, than you would, say, uh, Gamelon music of Bali. Here's another truth. Any form of music tends to reflect the shared sentiments of a particular community. Compare indie attitudes with hip-hop. Now, an indie band wouldn't think about singing about drinking Cristal in the back of a Maybach while discussing the size of the diamonds in their new grills. Neither would a hip-hop artist rhapsodically describe their new pickup, and neither would a rock band for that matter. Each form of music has its own aesthetics. If they don't mean anything to you on a cultural or emotional or personal level, then you're just not going to be into that kind of music. But others don't buy this seeing the non-whiteness of rock as a status quo barrier to people of color who would like to participate but feel excluded, feel like outsiders, unwelcome. They see countless microaggressions, covert expressions of racism, and continued cultural appropriation. Now, we are not going to solve any of these issues on this program, but I would like to acknowledge the contribution people of color have made to the evolution of alt-rock. Alt-rock is pretty white, yes, but not always. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. It is a fact that rock music was born out of a collision between blues, R&B, country, and hillbilly music back in the 1950s. The record producer Sam Phillips famously said, If I could find a white boy who could sing like a black man, I'd make a million dollars. And that white boy ended up being Albus Presley. But at exactly the same time, a 30-year-old black man from St. Louis named Chuck Berry was laying down guitar riffs and an attitude that ended up forming the very foundation of rock and roll. That one-two punch of Elvis and Chuck started us on the road to where we are today. It also foretold of a world where we would see more multiracial contributions to this music. Where would we be without Bo Diddley and Little Richard and Jimi Hendrix, Ike and Tina Turner, Funkadelic, Stevie Wonder, Bob Marley, Prince, or Slash? These artists are not only giants of rock, but giants of music, period. What I would like to do over the next hour is look at how people of color have contributed to the evolution of alt-rock over the decades. I'm not talking about musical influences that have drifted in and out of this music, but actual people who have actively participated in making it. 
This is by no means a definitive list. There are plenty of people who I could mention, but I did try to be as representative as possible when it came to those who left a serious mark on our music. That being said, I want to start with a band that should be considered one of the most important pre-punk bands of all time. They were called Death, two brothers and a friend who formed the band in Detroit in 1971. They began as a funk band, but after seeing The Who and Alice Cooper, they had an epiphany. And damn, they were good. Unfortunately, though, they were too far ahead of their time, and they broke up in 1977 and were pretty much forgotten. But then, the three sons of one of the members started covering their dad's songs in a band called Rough Francis after discovering their dad's previous life online. That led to a reissue of the original tapes in 2009 and an album called For the Whole World to See. This is originally from 1975. How did the world miss these guys? From Detroit, that's Death with Keep On Knocking. Three black men from Detroit who, albeit retroactively, are considered to be one of the most important pre-punk bands in America. Just as Death was breaking up in Detroit, Bad Brains was coming together in Washington, D.C. Now, if you know anything about hardcore punk, you will know that the Bad Brains is considered to be one of the pioneers of that entire scene. They started out as a jazz fusion band in 1976, but they were also interested in groups like Black Sabbath and some of the punk rock that was starting to come out of New York and the U.K. They changed their name to Bad Brains after the Ramon song, Bad Brain. The music got harder, got louder, and it got faster, although the band would veer into reggae and funk whenever the mood suited them. They were really good. But then there was this, you know, novelty of seeing an all-black band playing punk rock, which was supposedly a very white thing. Regardless, Bad Brains was so influential that they can be credited with laying down some of the foundations for all the American hardcore that was to come in the 1980s. And because of Bad Brains, there were rules of racial harmony in many areas of the hardcore scene. This is their debut single from 1980. That's Bad Brains and Pay to Come from 1980. Now, while the DC hardcore scene was made multiracial because of Bad Brains, there were plenty of racist issues over in the UK. A hard-right organization called the National Front was stirring up trouble over issues like immigration and multiculturalism. Fascist types who became well-known for street demonstrations in British cities in the 1970s that often led to rioting and injuries and damage. It was a pretty scary time. It was into that mix that the specials were introduced. They were formed by keyboardist Jerry Dammers, a white kid who was entranced by all the music new West Indian immigrants had brought with them to his hometown of Coventry. He loved reggae. He loved dub and rock steady. But most of all, he loved ska. Growing up in a multiracial city, he hated the racism that he saw around him and was inspired by the Rock Against Racism movement that began in 1978. When he decided to form his own band, he was all in when it came to being as inclusive as possible. And from the very beginning, the specials were designed to be an integrated band. And over the years, the specials have always been a mix of black and white musicians, some of whom were Caribbean immigrants. 
Even the band's logo featured a stylized Jamaican rude boy called Walt Jabsko. He had his black suit, the white shirt, the black tie, the pork pie hat, the white socks, and the black shoes. Walt was actually based on a photograph of Jamaican musician Peter Tosh, who was a former member of Bob Marley's Whalers. Whenever the specials played, they preached racial social harmony. Plus, they were instrumental when it came to introducing ska into the post-punk world. The specials from their debut album and A Message to You, Rudy, which is a cover of a 1967 Jamaican song by Dandy Livingstone called Rudy, A Message to You. If we're talking about post-punk interracial ska bands, we have to mention the English Beat. They came on the scene just after the specials and were headquartered in Birmingham, another city of choice for plenty of West Indian immigrants. Vocalist Ranking Roger and saxophonist Saxa, both of whom are black, added plenty of Jamaican influence to the music. Saxa had played with ska giants like Prince Buster and Desmond Decker in the early days, so this guy really knew what he was doing. And like the specials, the English beat was all about inclusion and fighting racism. They also cast their net a little wider. For example, everybody in the band was a big fan of Motown. They even covered this hit by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. The English Beat, an interracial band from England applying ska principles to a Motown groove. To restate our thesis, these groups featuring people of color did wonders when it came to shaping the post-punk world. If it weren't for bands like The Beat and The Specials, would we have all the ska punk that we have today? When we return, we'll get funky, rocky, and downright heavy metal-y. I call this the diversity episode of The Ongoing History. It's an attempt to recognize the important contributions of people of color when it came to alternative music. Rock has a reputation of being very white, and it is, but not always. This part of the story involves Fishbone, one of the most important groups in the blending of punk and funk, not to mention ska and hard rock and soul and elements of hip-hop and rap. They were formed in 1979, four black guys from South Central LA. Their stuff was socially conscious, anti-racist, clever, witty, and basically, a lot of fun. Soon there were six of them, and they were playing alongside punk bands. There was this one particular group that loved Fishbone and what they were doing, and they eventually coalesced into something called the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Later, the Beastie Boys would tag Fishbone to open one of their tours, and they were one of the main stage performers on the 1993 Lollapalooza tour. Fishbone's best years were from 1988 to about 1994, and then things got kind of weird. One member quit to join a religious cult, and when another member tried to break him out, that guy was charged with attempted kidnapping. They had other personnel problems. They had record company issues. And they were sued by a woman in Philadelphia after one of the members stage dove on top of her. That was good for $1.4 million. But Fishbone perseveres. They have a fanatical following. And the list of bands that say they are an important influence on them Really impressive, no doubt. Sublime, 311, Goldfinger, Rage Against the Machine, Faith No More. Here's something from their second album, Truth and Soul, which came out in 1988. This is Fishbone with Ma and Pa. Hey, my Pa, what the hell is wrong with y'all? Hey, my Pa, thank the love on your angel's feather. Woman, y'all get 
Fishbone, the all-black punk-funk pioneers. Just as they were peaking, along came Living Color, an all-black funk metal band. They were inspired equally by James Brown, Funkadelic, Run DMC, Sly and the Family Stone, and Led Zeppelin, Van Halen, and The Clash. They fused together funk and metal. They were formed by guitarist Vernon Reed, a guitarist who could do everything from punk to jazz. The singer is Corey Glover, an actor who can be seen playing Private Francis in the 1986 Oliver Stone movie Platoon. They started playing around New York City, including CBGB, and quickly established a reputation for being great players with an ability to rock really, really hard. Their debut album was called Vivid, and after it came out in 1988, Living Color took off. They toured with Guns N' Roses and the Rolling Stones and ended up on the first ever Lollapalooza tour in 1991. Back to that album, Vivid. It won a Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance and is best remembered for this track. It's Cult of Personality. Living Color and Cult of Personality from 1988, another band that inspired groups like Rage Against the Machine and Limp Bizkit, but uh, please don't blame them for that. And they also inspired this next band, Body Count. This is Ice-T's band. I remember seeing them tear down the house on the first ever Lollapalooza tour in 1991. Up until this project, Ice-T was best known as a gangster rapper, but he was also into rock. Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, that kind of thing. He also appreciated the speed of thrash metal, and Slayer is a favorite. Around 1989, he got to talking to his buddy, guitarist Ernie C., and they thought it would be really cool if they formed a metal band on the side. So they did, gathering up a bunch of friends they went to high school with in Los Angeles. Hey, Ice-T would say, we're a rock band with a rap mentality. And that meant focusing on things like racism, police brutality, inner-city crime, and various political issues. Typically, when they played, half of the set was devoted to body count material, and the other was hip-hop. This brought hip-hop to white audiences and metal to black ones. Ice-T was always quick to point out that rock originated with African-American artists like Chuck Berry and Little Richard. But this band was not without controversy. First of all, Ice-T's black audiences accused him of selling out by going in a rock direction. And second, white audiences didn't always appreciate an all-black metal band. And there were provocations, like the song Cop Killer, which was taken as an attack on police forces everywhere. That whole thing blew up into a big First Amendment debate in the U.S., which had many of the same elements as the Black Lives Matter movement. It got so crazy that shareholders threatened to pull all their money from Warner Brothers Records if the label didn't do something about body count. But the band continued and they were a big part of the move into new metal in the middle and late 90s. So basically, you can draw a line from Body Count right through Corn, Slipknot, and Limp Bizkit. You'll hear it immediately. Fierce stuff from Ice-T and Body Count. And in case you did not know... Yes, that is the same guy from Law & Order. And that's only one of the dozens of acting gigs that Ice-T has had over the decades. Okay, up until now, we focused on groups featuring people of color, African-Americans and British people of Caribbean descent. 
Rock has not seen many big-name black solo performers. Jimi Hendrix is the most famous. But right after that, we run into Lenny Kravitz. Lenny is the son of Roxy Roker, the actress who played Helen Willis on the TV show The Jeffersons. And before you ask, yes, he is a cousin of TV weatherman Al Roker. His father is Cy Kravitz, a producer with NBC News and a sometimes jazz promoter who listed Ella Fitzgerald, Miles Davis, and Duke Ellington as personal friends. Lenny grew up around music, wanting to be a musician from the time he was five. When he was a kid, he performed with the California Boys Choir and even sang with the Metropolitan Opera in New York. But along with jazz and classical, he was exposed to The Who and Led Zeppelin, Kiss and Pink Floyd and Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones. By 1988, he had gone through several musical phases, including a stint going by the name Romeo Blue, which didn't go over very well. But his music was such that it caused a five-way bidding war between record labels. When he agreed to sign with Virgin, he also agreed to go back to his real name, which was a good move. Since releasing his debut album, Let Love Rule, Lenny has had a string of platinum records and won the Grammy for Best Male Rock Vocalist four years in a row. Today, he still performs and records, but is making gazillions of dollars in the real estate business by renovating properties in New York, the Bahamas, Miami, Paris, and Toronto. Let's go back to that first album. This is Lenny Kravitz and Mr. Cab Driver. Mr. Cab Driver, don't like the way I look. He don't like dreads, he thinks we're all crooks. Lenny Kravitz from 1989. There are so many other African-Americans that we could have included in this program. Ben Harper, Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave guitarist Tom Morello. There's Slash. We could do 10 shows and just Bob Marley. The influence these people have had on alt-rock is almost incalculable. More diversity with the contributions from black alt-rockers coming up. Here are a few more black artists who are making important contributions to the world of alt-rock. Grace Jones was huge in alternative circles in the 1980s for her slinky dance and reggae. Skunk and Nancy was a fierce multiracial British alt-rock band that rocked some boats in the 1990s. They were led by Skin, their often bald front person. FKA Twigs has been attracting attention through the indie community. Alabama Shakes is fronted by the formidable Brittany Howard, great guitar player. And then there's Kelly Okereke, the frontman of the excellent British band Block Party. Kelly's full name is Roland Kilichubu Okereke. Both his parents are Nigerian, and Block Party came out of London beginning in 1999, making them part of the post-Britpop world that included other bands like Coldplay, the Kaiser Chiefs, and a bunch of others. Block Party got their big break when Kelly went to a Franz Ferdinand show and gave a tape to singer Alex Kapranos. That would be about 2003. Block Party won a bunch of awards in the UK early on, and it was fun to watch Kelly's feud with Oasis. He uh, really didn't hold them in high regard. Their first album, which was called Silent Alarm, appeared in 2005 and contained several solid singles, including this one called Banquet. Block Party with Kelly Okereke out front. Moving on to Abu Bakar Bakar Sharif Farr. But just Bakar is fine. He's a British singer, songwriter, and model. Interesting resume. And he has a rep for an experimental sort of indie rock. Mom and dad were Yemeni and Tanzanian, but he grew up in Camden in North London. His career began by uploading tracks anonymously to SoundCloud. Once he found his footing, 
he released an indie single called Big Dreams, which, to his surprise, ended up on the FIFA 19 video game. Since then, his whole thing has been to blur the lines between rap, indie rock, rock, and any number of other genres. In some senses, he's doing a lot of the same sort of thing as Block Party. He released a mixtape in 2018, and then an EP entitled Will You Be My Yellow? This was a breakthrough for him, thanks largely to a song called Helen Back. I remember, I remember I was all alone. Late night you would call my phone just to check if I was blessed because you knew I was low. Head gone rolling off the throne. I remember, I remember we were saying the par. Late night. Bakar with Helen Back. There are so many other artists I wish we had time for. Saul Williams, who has done work with Trent Reznor. There's LA's Fever 333, featuring vocalist Jason Owen Butler. Militia Fox, brilliant. She's got a great cover of Tools 46 and 2, and she fronts a Judas Priest tribute band called Judas Priestess. Other black artists and black inclusive groups to look out for. There's the Nova Twins, there's Loathe, Meet Me at the Altar, Big Joni, Danny Denial. There's Skindred from Wales. And back when we mentioned Detroit's death, we probably should have also mentioned Philadelphia's Pure Hell. They were doing their punk thing in 1974, before there was a thing called punk. They were an influence on bad brains. There's Black Pumas out of Austin and Kenny Hoopla from Cleveland. Like Bakar, he started by posting stuff to SoundCloud, and one of the songs was called Cave. It became the most streamed song of all time on SoundCloud. He's since released more material and has worked with Grandson, Jesse Rutherford of The Neighborhood, and Travis Barker of Blink-182. His biggest commercial success so far is How Will I Rest in Peace If I'm Buried by a Highway? The evolution of alt-rock has been a very collaborative process, incorporating contributions from untold numbers of artists. Still, though, rock had a reputation of being overwhelmingly white, and it is. However, it's very important that we acknowledge that we wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the vital contributions of people of color. And I'll say this again. This program is just the tip of the iceberg, which really shouldn't come as much of a surprise since so many of rock's roots are in rhythm and blues, and that it has spread to every corner of the globe. If you'd like to follow up on anything, I'm available through email virtually all the time. It's alan at alancross.ca. There's my website, which is updated all the time, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and we're building the Ongoing History Podcast Library. Subscribe through any podcast platform, and you're good to go. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Cotex. And I have two of the hosts of Art Cotex with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first and explain exactly what you guys will be doing? And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about 
it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now now you're just bragging. <laughs> <laughs> Horn, John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, and we're two kids from Brampton, Ontario that uh, went out to, you know, make art that broke out to the world. And now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done and, you know, as well, digging into, some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what, what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And, and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what, what went into to make that product and, and that, that piece of art as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell 
did this come from? What kind of <laughs> headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV, much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys being this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at architects pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Taj Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.